The Persistent and Nasty podcast is a series of interviews and informal discussions with inspiring women and other marginalised voices in theatre, film and beyond. From actors to activists, we aim to amplify these voices and invite the world to stay nasty. Hello you gorgeous lot and welcome to another episode of the Persistent and Nasty Podcast. It is the Persistent and Nasty Podcast at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe 2022 series. Yay! We're back at the festival and we're so excited. We have got an amazing list of guests for you to hear and we start with our very first episode today with um, playwright uh, Rosie Carrick. Rosie and Louise, because I have been away, if any of you uh, follow me on the social meds, you will know that, uh, chat all about uh, Rosie's work, her new play Musclebound, which is on at the festival and all details for the show are in the show notes of this episode. As it's the festival series, the intros will be much shorter because we have so many to get through. Um, So you know the drill by now. Get yourself a drink, whatever drink that may be wine, beer, champagne for the celebration of the start of the festival or, you know, just a good old cup of tea. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Well, hello, Rosie Carrick. It's lovely to have you on the Persistent and Nasty podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. And how are you today? How are you feeling today? I'm feeling good. It's a boiling hot day. I can see the sea out of my window. I'm going to jump in it later on. Oh. And um, I've just been, yeah, do, doing some some pre-Edinburgh edits on the show. Cracking oh my goodness. <laughs> Is it feeling very real now? Yeah, well, I did some preview shows at Brighton Fringe and, um, and it, it was very heartening. It was so weirdly difficult to write and mm. I almost cancelled it several times but it, it all came together in a good way but then I had a month off and now getting back into it and uh, it felt kind of terrifying to get back into it you know and you've kind of got one version of you something you're like great fine I'll just leave it as that I don't know yeah. what it's like now <laughs> but of course once you start picking into it again especially having a bit of distance I was like oh yeah I see where this could go. I always think uh, I, I write myself as well write screenplays and plays and whenever I get close to finishing first draft of something that exchange from Fleabag pops into my head where she's going tell me the truth it's horrendous no it's modern it's modern (laughs) like that's the exchange I'm having in my head um well that's very exciting so you are going to be the first in our series of Ed Fringe guests which is very exciting but before we start talking about your show and doing that uh getting into the meat of that and finding out about the work you're presenting in Edinburgh this year Tell us about you. Um, tell our listeners who you are and give us a bit of a snapshot of you and your work. Sure. Uh, well, I'm Rosie. I guess yeah. you knew that was already. <laughs> um, I live in Hove um, and I'm a poet, um, an academic translator of the Russian revolutionary poet Vladimir Mayakovsky. I also um, do lots of stage comparing. I compare the poetry and words uh, stage at Glastonbury amongst other things and used to run a couple of club nights and poetry nights in Brighton and um, uh, I also work in game development now we work with the Zaum studio and of course write plays as well that's quite the CV 
quite the CV. When I was doing my homework on you ahead of chatting today, I was like, wow, I am deeply intimidated. This is, <laughs> this is exciting. I mean, I don't even know really where to start. I'm so fascinated by everything that you do. And I'm fascinated as well by the um, the topic of your friend show, which we'll get onto. But I guess I was like, one of the things I wanted to ask first was, um, what brought you to your PhD topic? And what about that particular poet? And that's really, that sounds really meaty and um, Russian. <laughs> yeah, it's very, very Russian. Uh, well, do you know, I knew absolutely nothing about Russian culture, Russian literature, Russia, the Russian language at all. And I was doing an MA at Sussex University years ago, like it was 2007, eight. And um, one of the modules I was doing was a Marxism module. And one of the readings of one of the weeks was this guy, Vladimir Mayakovsky. And I was just like, oh, great. I dropped my daughter off at school. She was still quite young then and went into this coffee shop to read this sort of 30 page poem. And it was just the most extraordinary thing I'd ever read. This 30 page kaleidoscopic, glorious, passionate poem written in 1915. And I just it was really kind of avant garde and bizarre and I just couldn't imagine how you would come to an English translation like this one I was reading it felt so singular and it made me a fall in love with this poet who is dead now he died in 1930 he shot himself um and b just made me want to learn Russian so I could see what it was like in the original so I could kind of understand how you would come to these this sort of mad translation and so I'm quite an obsessive kind of person <laughs> so I just um started to learn Russian and wow. then when I finished my MA I couldn't stop sort of obsessing over this guy and I yeah, started doing a PhD on him and and in doing the PhD I found out that actually only a very small number of his works have actually been translated into English and often very often translated particular ones so um, and in general it is these passionate um, young kind of intense love poems which is which are all really cool to listen to but actually he wrote so much more lots of poetry for children which I'm translating at the moment loads of really kind of explicitly feminist works like deriding party members who would preach about the importance of equality at party meetings and then go home and shout at their wives for not cooking them dinner and okay. expect them to look after the children this kind of real hypocrisy in the party none of these things had ever been translated and because he's such a kind of an intense brooding looking guy it really encouraged this western perspective of him as this sort of um macho womanizer sort of James <laughs> Dean of Russian poetry and so <laughs> I really wanted to I mean it sounds kind of bad I'm basically making him less and less cool all the time by, um, by translating these other things but it just seems so unfair that all of these other things and this hugely complex multifaceted character were, were being ignored. That's so interesting do you fit I, I'm just wondering when you said there like him railing against the sort of the patriarchy of his time do you think that might have been one of the reasons why he wasn't so widely translated compared to maybe some of his contemporaries or peers because he was basically speaking truth to power well I mean he's in Russia he's like enormously famous he's the, he's the oh, second yeah? favorite poet after Pushkin so, wow. so, in, so in that sense but it but it is weird and I, I don't know maybe not that much 
Russian lit, lit, yeah, literature apart from Pushkin and so on is translated commonly. Mm. But I, I think, yeah, you're quite right that actually because he was a poet of the revolution, he started writing before the Russian revolution, he was sort of taken on as the mouthpiece of the revolution and the new Soviet state. But of course, very quickly, the new Soviet state needed a very different kind of literature, to, you know, kind of social realism, not this kind of mad explosive stuff. And he really is unique insofar as he did both of these things. He pursued this real avant-garde literature and really saw innovative literature and formal innovation as a political tool in itself. Mm. Uh, but, but he also did things like writing, you know, comic strips called, you know, How Not to Die from Cholera and things <laughs> like that. So that with these really easy couplets and funny pictures to as a tool to educate the largely sort of illiterate masses on, on basic stuff, um, but he, they, the Soviet state basically created a monster because he became enormously famous, but then was hugely critical of them and didn't mm. hold back and they boycotted all of his work. So, yeah, I think, I think that after he killed himself, the state was forced to backtrack a bit and, and declare that he was a really important Soviet poet, which meant that, yes, in the Western world later on, he became seen as this kind of Stalinist dupe, I think, a lot of the time, which was really unfortunate and a lot of the translations that have been made have tried to rescue him from that by showing you know this other side to him but the flip side of that is that um yeah it's a very kind of what you know the western world wants wants romance and passion and love and you know talking about uh yeah the hypocrisy of party members doesn't seem quite so sexy and <laughs> maybe yeah <laughs> Uh, that's very relevant content for today. I feel like we maybe need a figure like that in the UK today at the moment. Um, that is so fascinating. So like, you're a poet yourself, correct? Yes, that's right. And did some of the exploration into his work, did that precede your poetry? Like, was that before or after you got into poetry yourself or was it concurrent? I, I actually started writing poetry as a child when I was six or seven and just totally fell in love with it. It just felt so powerful. You know what I mean? You could just have like a piece of paper and a pen and you could just make stuff. Didn't need to play a musical instrument, didn't need to go anywhere. You could just sort of make these. It was rhyming in particular, making, forcing language into shapes and sound patterns. Um, so I had always loved writing. Never even occurred to me until I was sort of in my early 20s that I could actually make a living from writing but poetry was always the first thing and it, it does take a back seat sometimes when I'm focusing on other stuff there's only so much of capacity in one's brain I think <laughs> so there's been a couple of times where I've thought ah oh, that's it I don't write poetry anymore and then I, another project ends and it's like boom so mm. um yeah. once a poet always a poet yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, but yes, yeah, certainly Mayakovsky's work did, it, it sort of influenced me. It made me think differently about my own work. And um, yeah, he, there's this essay of his as well called How a Verse is Made, which is so hilarious and so, well, again, quite difficult to read on the first couple of readings, but really an interesting and quite in-depth account of what's important to him in writing and what's useless and how he really slams a lot of his fellow contemporary poets I, I find it hilarious it would be so wonderful if, <laughs> if we would get poets writing these kind of things now and just being like oh and as for such and such I wouldn't name any poets now in this uh, but yeah he was pretty kind of shameless and brazen in in what he felt wasn't good but could get away with it because he himself was so fantastic and innovative there's something very rock and roll about poetry and spoken word I've always thought that like 
there's a there's a way it is lyrical and it is musical in its own way and the ability to use it to sort of like you know stick your finger up at the man it's just that that just feels very rock and roll to me yeah yeah he was actually described as the first and only early soviet rap star which i think (laughs) and he would give these performances from memory and these like to crowds of thousands of people i mean it's just a very different kind of culture in relation to poetry anyway, particularly then and this sort of booming, rolling voice, whereas at the time everything sounded like you're at some funeral or something. He had this real power. Uh, really hot. Yeah, really <laughs> hot. My, my last show, Passionate Machine, was actually all about building a time machine to go and rescue him because I so much. I did actually stalk his daughter, who was in her 80s at the time I found her and living in New York. She'd only oh, met wow. him. And I went to visit her and stole some of her hair so that I could clone <laughs> I could so I, I still I'm still sitting on that I haven't quite got the technology yet but <laughs> at some time the hair is there if there's any sort of I don't know cloning experts listening to this I ahead. love that does she know you did that just out of curiosity <laughs> I didn't like to tell her so that says like your so your first show then was that your first um show as in like a sort of hour-long like yeah piece of theater? Yeah, yeah, my first theatre. Sounds like it was a bit of fan fiction in its own way as well. <laughs> like, well, it was it, it was very geeky. It was sort of, um, I mean, it was very personal, N- not as personal as this next one, I guess, but it was very, I mean, it's about kind of self-care and going back in time. But I also loved sci-fi and time travel, so it was very, I really wanted to make something that abided by its own logic I really hate it when you see sci-fi stuff and then the logic just falls apart halfway through and you're like no that couldn't happen yeah so I was very pleased to have lots of sci-fi geeks come and see it and then be like yeah I like that and so many people far more than you'd expect got in touch with me thinking I really had built a time machine asking me to take messages to their past (laughs) so great is my um persuasive logic wow that's yeah. amazing that's probably the highest form of compliment you could get if you're writing <laughs> about time travel like I know there was there was one guy who first of all was like well I don't think this is real and anyway I don't think that you've got enough knowledge to do this there was this over a series of weeks would send these sort of quite misogynistic things really I don't know if you know there was me being a woman I think was a real part of it at the beginning for him but then as time went on he was like listen when this is finished, can you please take a message to my younger self and say, it doesn't matter about your eye condition and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so sweet. So lovely. He still sometimes gets in touch with me to ask how, you know, how my time travel is going. Oh, that is, that's, um, that had a happy ending. That slightly, that, that started as a, felt like it started as a, an anecdote about, oh yes, so a man is now trolling me about what I do and do not know how, no, how novel. Um, mm. And then it's ended up kind of sweet. Yeah, that, yeah, that's not too bad. No. So tell us about um, the new show, the show you're working on now. Muscle Bound. Mm. Um, so it's a show. In, let's see. Now, when I was a child, like five years old, it started. I became obsessed with watching muscle bound men in mainstream films of the 1980s being erotically tortured by their male antagonists. <laughs> Um, I mean, I loved it. Like He-Man in Masters of the Universe, Conan the Barbarian. Um, I, I just, and of course on TV at that time as well, there were lots of kind of repeats of old 50s films of 
beefy men being flogged unconscious, you know, revived with water and flogged unconscious again. But there was something different about these 80s films. It was about, there was a real power and real sexualization to it. And, but, but of course, never acknowledged at that mm. time. Yeah. So um, I guess, sorry, I just went off on, I stuck with the men then instead of talking about the show. So the show is about me as an adult rediscovering um, this obsession which happened a few years ago and I happened to watch He-Man again for the first time in years. I was like, oh my God. Um, and about me and about it making me really reflect on my own sexual past and my own sense of sexual power. And um, and I'm basically going on a mission to fuck a bodybuilder. And I mean, that, that was the initial part, but but I don't know if I can swear in here. It's now I said this Absolutely. Um, uh, but but to to get to the root of that power and to and to find out why sometimes in my past I hadn't felt very sexually powerful despite always being very confident and brazen and sexually exuberant, let's say. And at the time I was writing it, my daughter was also turning eighteen or seventeen at the time. She's twenty now. And um, and I was aware that you know I had her when I was I got pregnant when I was eighteen. I had sex for the first time when I was seventeen. So I had this real confronting thing in front of me of seeing her at the start of her sexual journey and really reflecting on my own sexual past. And in many ways, I sort of grew up alongside her. And I just yeah, it made me think, what do I wish I had seen mm. um, when I was that age? Obviously, what she doesn't want to see although she hears it all too often is her mum talking about wanking non-stop <laughs> but um but yeah something so it's about sexual power I guess and uh, and, and from a particularly female perspective about pleasure and uh, the politics of pleasure and fantasy and and going to any lengths to fulfill that fantasy <laughs> amazing this sounds so up my street uh... <laughs> When I read the copy for it, I was like, right. This is, this is this. So, in sort of, what was the, when you rewatched He Man, what kind of, what did that bring back? Because these are really sort of formative films and they're so, in my mind, they're so homoerotic. Like, they're, they're, they're kind of held up as like, oh, men are men and look, but they're all so shiny and like, they look like, yeah and the and the torture scenes are played out as seductions you know this is the thing and I, and but yeah there's this it was a real kind of emperor's new clothes thing I mean in the show don't want to give too much away but I asked Dolph Lundgren who played He-Man and I asked Arnold Schwarzenegger about these things and they're just totally oblivious it seems even now they just it, you know and it, I felt like I was the kid in the emperor's new clothes saying but you're naked <laughs> um but of course the reason the dynamics uh, you know are there because you know they're made in the 80s there's this hot the AIDS crisis was coming to a peak you know there's just kind of the cold war was happening so all of these kind of baddies are these generally quite effeminate mm. foreign very kind of uh, gay seeming insofar as they're do they're operating this kind of seductive way of torture and and so the, the kind of the scenes it's like all of this kind of politics is being played out on these guys impossibly macho bodies so that by engaging in this threat but then overcoming it they are re-establishing themselves as manly as straight as western this kind of huge power all 
embodied literally in their bodies. Fascinating, you know, for such a kind of, I mean, there's such bizarre scenes, as you say, and for such a kind of, what seems such a kind of ridiculous time in history, there's a lot of politics embedded in them, I guess. Really fascinating stuff to unpick. It was a weird time. It was a weird time for movie making across the board. Um, <laughs> these mad movies and like the, the way bodies are used across the board in eighty in in the eighties and that that trend for um, movies that are just basically about aerobics. <laughs> like they're about yeah, uh, just, yeah, yeah. Which again, great soundtracks, but kind of questionable plot points. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're you're quite right. I mean, and it was in a way tied tied to a similar thing. You know, I think. Well, I, originally, I had really wanted to talk a lot more about bodybuilding, and I do talk about bodybuilders and bodybuilding a bit in this show, but I didn't have time for everything. Um, but the kind of I was looking particularly originally at the trajectory of bodybuilding, which kind of came to you know really started to be popular in post Second World War America, which was obviously wealth and so on um, and the way that that intersected with these films in the 80s because bodybuilding these days is crazy like they, when you compared to people like Steve Reeves in the 50s who was a big Arnold Schwarzenegger was influenced by to see bodybuilders today I mean don't take me wrong I love them I became really obsessed with bodybuilders during the research for the show and now go to bodybuilding shows <laughs> all the time <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, Arnold Schwarzenegger, I think, really just sparked this whole generation of fitness craze because he became so popular as a bodybuilder and then and then moved into films and there was a ripple effect that went on for ages. Yeah, yeah, it was so prolific. It was, uh, you know, from being that, that, yeah, being a bodybuilder to being taken quite seriously as an action star. And that, 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 that arc is quite, it's quite fascinating. Um, so... Uh, what are you hoping that people like if you what's your elevator pitch for the show what are you hoping people will take away from it um i want it to start conversations i think it's about you know sexual shame sexual honesty and um uh, yeah being kind of shameless and truthful and um this is a long elevator ride <laughs> I don't know how many floors we're going up but I yeah I suppose um I mean it's fun uh, you know it's it's a lot funnier than I thought it was going to be it was so difficult to write because I really tap into some stuff that was such a source of shame for me not about fancying the bodybuilders of course that's all fine but um <laughs> for so many years that it felt terrifying to talk about on stage and a few times I nearly cancelled the whole show. When I did these previews at Brighton, so many people, men and women, but particularly women, emailed me afterwards and said, I've never seen anyone talk about this before. Thank you for speaking frankly about your own experience. And I thought, yes, this is good. This is what I want. This is what I wanted to happen. And um, <laughs> yeah. That's, exciting. That's really exciting. Because, I mean, I think the concept of sexual shame is just so prevalent for women. It's just like, and I think it's interesting that it's so interesting to me that the focus or the sort of um, catalyst or inspiration for making this show, I, I love it. I love the campness of it. I love the fact that it's He-Man and Conan the Barbarian and these types of figures. Um, because the the lens through which they they were viewed in the 80s and are viewed still now is like, there's a, 
fetishization of them and sexualization of them, but the lens is totally different. Like they kind of hold on to all their own power, whereas women have been sexualized in that way against our will for you know for various different means, and the shame sort of is embedded in our society still today. Um, yeah, yeah, that's it. Uh, sorry, Karen. Well, I was just going to say, yeah, that's exactly exactly that. That that's what really struck me. That in these, when you have scenes of a woman being stripped of her clothes, of being kind of, you know, imprisoned, tortured, it's she's that power is taken from her. But with the but in when these men are doing it, it's a sign of their increased power, their increased strength, and they rescue themselves. Whereas women in these situations always need rescuing or don't get rescued at all. And are killed, and I just, you know, it's it's exactly the same. Of course, you know, it's about subject versus object, and it's exactly the same as sex. That uh, for women, sex means is something to be used up. You know, you you, don't, you cheapen yourself by doing it, whereas for men, that's simply not the case. And uh, and I think those um, opinions still hold in the kind of you know public perception. And yeah, just those scenes. I mean, what what. What I really found interesting is that, of course, those scenes are problematic. They're inherently very misogynistic. They're homophobic. They're often racist. This real kind of upholding of these very kind of patriarchal norms. And yet what I realized when I rewatched these films is that actually, for me, they were probably the most liberating sexual templates that I had growing up because mainly because they didn't really have any women in them so I was I had free reign to just kind of objectify and fetishize people who were empowered by that objectification um and um as opposed to the kind of sexual lessons you learn growing up as a woman elsewhere so I you know I I unpick those scenes in the show but I certainly don't get rid of them you know I love them I still watch them all the time now (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> would it, would um, someone need the uh, canonical knowledge of these films, of these catalogue of films, to come into the show and enjoy it, or is it kind of? Oh no, I show a lot of footage. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you've seen, if, if you're familiar with those films and you come to the show, then you then you you have an exact knowledge. But do you know what? They're so kind of ubiquitous, and they've been kind of taken off so much that even you see a couple of clips, and I show a kind of montage of you know, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Dolph Lundgren, they're the kind of the big four, you know, yeah. Edinburgh may have its big four venues. <laughs> These are the, the big four bodies. Um, and when you just see in this montage, one after another, you're just like, yeah, that's really quite weird. What the hell was going on in the 80s? <laughs> Why is no one picked up on this? <laughs> Yeah, that's. Uh, I bet that would be a bit of an education. Yeah, seeing it all in one go, you're like, okay, something, something was happening in this time period. They're also yeah. shiny as well. They're also shiny. So shiny, yeah, yeah. So, and again, they sort of they're feminized. You know, they're often hairless as well. Yes, so smooth. And, and so they're kind of feminized in inverted commas. Of course, listeners can't see me doing this. <laughs> um, but again, it's about them being put in these vulnerable, feminized positions and then breaking through it and proving again their own kind of masculine strength and so on. Really, um, yeah, interesting. In your in your research, when you were sort of researching the bodybuilding aspect of it, um, I'm, I'm fascinated by women bodybuilders and the way they get viewed. Um, 
because I feel like people, some people have a really visceral reaction to that, like they hate it or it becomes a bit of an obsession. And did that come up in your research at all? Because um, it's just not, like in the way that bodies are fetishized, women in a sort of strong women, they're just represented, like physically strong in terms of physical strength, it's just represented in a different way in our media. I'm just sort of interested about your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, of course, you know, femininity and muscularity are kind of mutually exclusive, it seems, in, mm. in the public opinion, but also weirdly in bodybuilding competitions. Like, um, there's this fantastic bodybuilder from the, I guess, late 70s, early 80s called Bev Francis. Well, I mean, she's still around now. She runs a, a bodybuilding gym in America. And she really turned the tide of the of the bodybuilding um, women's bodybuilding because she competed and was enormously muscular. She had been a weightlifter before, so she was very muscular, whereas everyone else at that time were just sort of quite toned, fit-looking, slim women. And uh, there was a huge controversy. She was really marked down despite being by far the most muscular person, woman in the competition. And after that, they introduced this new rule that women were judged on their femininity as well as their muscularity. Okay. Of course, and what that meant is that they couldn't look too masculine and yet being muscular was seen as masculine. So this is still a kind of point of controversy now because in some competitions, women have to decrease their muscularity by 20% just in order to enter the competition. Um, and so, and also, of course, a part of their being judged on femininity means having all of these kind of markers of femininity, like, you know, many of them feel the pressure to get fake breasts. They have huge glitzy jewelry, makeup, blonde hair extensions, fake nails. They all have to wear these sort of perspex uh, stiletto heels. It's so, it really angers me because there are these enormously fit athletes who are a just not allowed to be as impressive as their male counterparts although you know uh, to be fair I think their male counterparts really ought to have some cap on how muscular they can be because it's just not healthy so be so muscular uh, and b have to go through this charade of this kind of performance of femininity as opposed to just showing their bodies that's um, wild yeah Imagine insane that, yeah like the test of physical strength and the sort of athleticism involved in that and the working out and then having to like doll yourself up. Yeah. <laughs> it just seems completely absurd. Yeah. How do you lift yeah. weights with fake nails? I suppose you can. I know. I know. I mean, I, I mean, I guess that they just, I mean, of course, they, you know, they only have these fake nails. So when it comes time to the competition, not not beforehand. But yeah, it just feels um crazy. And their costumes as well, you know. I was talking to a friend of mine who's a bodybuilder the other day. And he was saying that, you know, there were times where he would just even do brush his hair and think about it. He had these sort of posing pouches that cost like 25 quid. The bikinis that the women wear are all handmade for them and can cost like one and a half grand. You know, oh so God. again, I know there's this. Uh, and because they aren't able to become that muscular, the sponsorship is far less prize money. The top prize for the top female bodybuilding category at the either the Arnold Classic or the Olympia, which is the, the biggest one, it's twenty five thousand dollars for the for the women. For the men, it's one hundred and forty five thousand dollars. It's oh my it's god, crazy! It's crazy, and so it's yeah. There's a highly problematic. <laughs> yeah, 
it's such an egregious jump as well. It's just so it's such a vast jump. Like, oh, yeah. Thank you. Fuck you too. <laughs> yeah. And the reason being that they that they don't have as many sponsors, but they don't have as many sponsors because they are there isn't as much the same muscularity, so they can't get to the same extent. There isn't the muscularity because the rules say they can't, and it's all because they need to look sexy. They can, sure you can look muscly for so long as you look sexy as well. That's the bottom line, I think, you know. And I, as I say, I love, I love bodybuilding and, and there, like everything in life, you know, there's this kind of weird um, gender-based split. So I certainly don't mean to slag off bodybuilding any more than I would Hollywood films or yeah, anything yeah. like that. But, um, but it feels so stark in front of you like that when, it, when the body is the thing you're looking at and you can't yeah. help but notice this enormous difference between men and women. Yeah, that's uh, that's wild. Oh my goodness, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty mad. I'm pretty mad, but it's just nuts. Goodness, uh, I don't even know where to go from that. Actually, I kind of want to get out and like find if find out if there's a way I could campaign on that. <laughs> I mean, there is at the Olympias, um, which happens in Las Vegas every September. There. Um, sort of old school female bodybuilders started this new category called wings of strength for kind of bigger female bodybuilders and that's getting a lot more traction I think so I think that they've kind of created their own portion of this which is really to focus on those women who do want to become bigger and more muscular and of course it's not for everyone um you know and you know women's bodies in particular are physically smaller it's a lot more work to become so um much you know, so muscular in, in that way and has a bigger impact as well physically, I think. But um, as my bodybuilding friend was telling me the other day, he said, you really shouldn't slag off the, the fact that female bodybuilders are smaller. And I was like, yeah, I wasn't there. I was talking about the fact that they're not able to. He's like, yeah, I know, but I know people who've, you know, pushed their bodies and their muscles are only going to last 10 years, but the impact on those women is going to last forever. I thought, this is good to know, good inside info. I just speaking of strength, but not physical strength, but like um, inherent strength as a person. I'm circling back a little bit, and I hope you don't mind me um, bringing it up. I, I I couldn't help but have it like land quite uh, meaningfully with me that you said that you have a daughter who's now twenty, which means you've achieved everything that you've achieved while being a mother. And <laughs> I just wanted to take a minute because just thinking about strength as we're on the subject of strength just how incredible that is and um yeah I just wondered if you could speak to that a little bit like PhD you've written books you've you've been published you've you've had two at least two shows and all of your poetry work as well like that's um, that's incredible I hope your daughter is incredibly proud of you (laughs) thank you thank you yeah do you know what she called me up or did not call me up she's texted me hi last week at like eight in the morning said mom I'm just still I'm still at Ava's party, but I just wanted to say I think you're so lovely and I love you so much and I want to give you a massive hug. <laughs> so nice being her drunk dial. Um, <laughs> yeah, I got pregnant when I was 18 um, and I'm still very good friends with Olive's dad, but we haven't been together. You know, we were together for like two years so the last 18 years um, we haven't been. So I've always been a single parent and um, it's... It's a funny one, you know, it keeps you on the straight and narrow in a lot of ways. It has kept me on the straight and narrow. And um, and it, it it is hard, I guess, at times, but you, because it's just always been my life, it's kind of odd, you know, and the flip side is that getting pregnant so young meant that I didn't really have a life. I was at university, I met her dad in my first year at university. 
where I'd only got into through clearing because I was meant to go to Sussex, but then had gone to see David Bowie at Glastonbury 2000, fell asleep the next day in my English exam, failed it and had to go through clearing uh, to Aberystwyth, where I straight away got pregnant. So um, kind of bizarre happenstance. But um, uh, but yes, it's um, I was a, kind of a mess, to be honest, in my teen years. I was all over the place and having Olive really saved me really and and I and it's funny you know in thinking about this show and it being her reaching this age that really made me confront some things about myself that in that sense it's like she continued to do that you know having a child you know it really gave me something to funnel my love into and to reflect myself into and um yeah so in that, and in some ways, I think being on your own with a child, in a way, makes it easier because you don't have to answer to someone. There isn't this, like, you know, oh well, why are you going to Russia for a month when I've got to blah blah blah. You know, you can just sort of do what you do what you want a lot more. So Olive grew up, you know, coming to my poetry shows, sort of going to sleep on a pile of coats at the table, <laughs> just like, oh, coming to festivals and so on. Um, it's all very very cool. Like mum still. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it was kind of weird when she left home last summer because it was for the first time in my adult life. I wasn't um, didn't have a child to look after, but then it, it does feel quite sad sometimes. But it's also like being on holiday all the time, <laughs> which is really nice. Yeah, I can't imagine just how how you've managed to to do it. I mean, I think I don't have children myself, and and I'm constantly in or and respect my friends who do because I don't know how they juggle all of the things that they do whilst also taking care of another human I, I can barely take care of myself so it's an active choice to not have to <laughs> inflict my uh, chaotic lifestyle on, on a child and uh, yeah I'm always in awe of that because you've you've packed so so much in to your life from the size of things from your CV it's just it's 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 wild so yeah well done and um and it speaks to uh, a real determination because, you know, I think that even in 2022, we talk a lot about motherhood and, and the uh, women in the arts and how those two things can clash um, to, to the detriment of your careers quite often. Um, we talk about that a lot on the podcast. So it's um, it's always really exciting to talk to someone who's, um, well, we talk, well, that, actually I was about to say it's exciting to talk to someone who's juggled that in that way, but we every, everyone we talk to has juggled that in that way. Women just find a way. Parents yeah. find a way. Parents in the arts find a way, um, despite uh, the barriers that are present all the time, even in 2022. Yeah, I mean, things like, you know, I guess there were certain conscious decisions, like when I was doing my PhD, I knew that that was something, I did it part-time over six years, and I knew that, that was a thing that I could do. I would be working from home. I could, it was flexible, so I could pick Olive up from school, take her into school. You know, during the holidays, I just had to stop working on it. Sometimes my supervisor would be like, look, now, Rosie, you know, just want to say when I was doing mine, I was reading for like 11 hours a day. I was like, yeah, but you weren't looking after a child on your own, were you? <laughs> I was just like, you know. Oh, that's so frustrating. I hate, I hate it when that happens in any context in our professional lives where somebody makes a comparison it's like well when I do it it's like this it's like, I don't I don't care I'm not you and I don't have your circumstances yeah yeah I don't understand why we still kind of operate like that in that sort of weirdly passive-aggressive competitive mode where it's just like we should just 
make allowances for people and their circumstances and trust yeah. adults to be adults and get it done like yeah very annoying yeah very middle management technique yeah and I mean I can't remember the context now I think I think um but yeah I mean I sort of said this to him at some and we're very good friends uh, at still and he's got two children now and really is like gosh it's quite hard isn't it <laughs> <laughs> so um but yeah I just thought wow you you did a lot of skim reading but I passed it with no corrections so it was all, oh. all, all oh, good so are you excited about uh, returning to Edinburgh? Did you did you bring your first show? Sorry, I shouldn't say returning to Edinburgh before I've checked. Did you come to Edinburgh with your first show? You did, didn't you? I sure did, yeah. I was very lucky with my first show because it won the award for Best New Play at Brighton Fringe and Best Design and then won this award at Edinburgh, the Infallibles Award for Theatrical Excellence. And um, I think that having... I didn't really know what to expect. I just ruptured two discs in my back early that year. So I was like wearing this kind of support brace all the time. Um, but it was a really positive experience. I mean, after about the 10th show, I was so bored of performing it, but <laughs> I thought I'm never going to do this again. So in some ways I'm like, what am I doing? But, but it was like, it was really great to get into that rhythm and, do you really have to go into a different mindset and find new things in it all the time? And the last show was quite difficult to perform as well. It was very kind of complex, the narrative. It darted around a lot between different kind of timelines and narratives and so on. Whereas this one is uh, much more fun. And also I really wasn't prepared for how funny people found it. I was, I, because it, it was felt so difficult to write and I knew there were parts when I was writing it that I was just like lolling my head off a bit but you know when you just sort of something tickles you a bit when you're writing it down I just didn't know but from the first performance I was like oh, okay this is a fun show <laughs> so I think it will be quite good fun to um to perform every day there um so when was when was the first show was that 2019 or was it further back than that that was 2018 and then it toured about 2019 yeah Great. So uh, you're excited about making a return to Edinburgh after <laughs> after two and a bit years um, of no festival. Um, it's going to be a bit of a. It's going to be interesting to come back. I think um, to see shows again and be in Edinburgh in August. Um, do you have any things you're excited about, or any top tips for people coming to Edinburgh, either to see shows or performers who are doing it for the first time? Oh gosh, I've got no tips at all. Um, I, I still haven't. Do you know what? I was just thinking this morning about because a friend is going to come and visit me for a couple of days when I'm up there. I was like, oh, we can go and see some things. And then I thought, gosh, I've got no idea what's on. I haven't looked in the program at all. I mean, I'm really looking forward to just wandering around and getting flyered and, mm-hmm. um, and, going to see things um uh, the last time I was there I was feeling quite guilty because Olive was in Brighton her dad was staying with her she was getting her GCSE results and I wasn't there um and um and and I was there with my partner who was kind of a prick um whereas now I'm sort of like free single child free I'm just really looking forward to like soaking into it and um taking it all as it comes I think it can be quite overwhelming I think if you're there for the first time so I suppose my advice for people in that sense is to just chat to people on the phone every day if you feel a bit lonely and 
get in touch with other people who are there because it's a bit like when you start school for the first time, you know, you feel a bit afraid, but you can be sure that everyone else is feeling exactly the same way. Yeah, absolutely. I think you've just you've just checked, like, I think it's the holy trinity of things to be while you're at the fringe. It's like single, child-free, <laughs> relatively carefree. Like, that's a recipe for, recipe for glory and potential potential disaster as well. So I'm very excited yeah, yeah. for you on that front. <laughs> Thanks. Well, I really found out at the Brighton shows as well that this show, given the subject matter, it really turned me into a total cock magnet. So <laughs> I'm like, if I have the same, if it has the same effect in Edinburgh, I'm going to be like, Picking up a different guy every night. I can't wait. <laughs> this, this show and indeed this podcast is just a, a big elaborate uh, personal life for you. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> I'm very excited for you on that front. That sounds absolutely brilliant. Um, are there any other things you would like to tell people about the show? Um, because obviously we're going to cover where you can see it, how you can see it etc um but are there any like anything we haven't covered about the show that you'd really like people to know um do you know I think I suppose all I would say is that even if you've got absolutely no interest in bodybuilding or 80s films or sex (laughs) you should come along you should come along and see it anyway because it's um yeah it's it's more than the sum of its parts and uh, a similar similar with I guess Passionate Machine which was on the surface about sci-fi and uh, geekery um but yeah I just would would love to hear people's feedback on it and um I think I mean we've talked about it in quite a lot of depth so I don't think there's any more to add except it'll be great I promise <laughs> that's saying great um so well the key stuff we should cover then is where people can see it how they can see it what time they can see it at etc how they can corner you in the bar and find out if they can take you for a drink all of that ah <laughs> uh, yes yes uh, just wear a red rose between your teeth um <laughs> so it's on at assembly roxy downstairs at 5 50 p.m that is to say 17:50 in the 24 hour clock yep uh and it lasts for an hour tickets for all friends shows at edfringe.com so if you are keen on seeing the show listeners you just go to edfringe.com and find shows type in muscle bound and it will take you to the listing on the fringe site and you can book tickets um do you have social media rosie that i sure do yeah um i don't really go on twitter because a bit too aggressive for my liking that's fair (laughs) yeah instagram i am at rosie carrick and that is of course r-o-s-y-c-a-r-r-i-c-k amazing um great well uh hopefully plenty of people are going to come see the show off the back of this and potentially sit in the front row with a rose between their teeth (laughs) i don't know if we want to take credit for that yet we'll take credit for it now and if it turns (laughs) out It turns out that you need to come find us and say, save me, you're responsible for this, then we'll do that. We'll we'll be human shields for you. Persistent and nasty will be human shields for you. Um, At the end of all of our podcasts, what we ask our guests um, is uh, the nature of our podcast is to celebrate and amplify the voices of women and uh, LGBTQ, members of the LGBTQ plus community. and persistent and nasty was we named it for it's kind of like a tongue-in-cheek thing in reference to um elizabeth warren and the nevertheless she persisted uh, moment and trump calling uh hillary clinton a nasty woman and just 
kind of took those moments from the popular culture and created the name as a sort of cheeky, tongue-in-cheek kind of reclamation of words. Um, So what we like to do is ask our guests, when they hear that, when they hear Persistent and Nasty, I'm going to go chat to these two women in Scotland who run a podcast called Persistent and Nasty, what that means to you, what that that brings up in your mind. Um, And it can just be off the top of your head what it makes you think. What does persistent and nasty make me think? Yeah, what does it mean to you? What does persistent and nasty mean to you? Oh, gosh. Well, I, do you know what? When I saw that this was called persistent and nasty, I really liked it. And um, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, so I suppose it means, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it feels like a rebellion to me. It feels like, you know, the idea of being persistent and nasty. And for me, nasty, um, it, it feels... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? P- perverse, I guess. When I think about nasty stuff, I watch quite perverse, disgusting pornography. Obviously, not nothing horrible. I mean, in a kind of S and M sort of way. And so it's kind of it has this lovely kind of vibe like that to me. But yeah, persistent and nasty, um, all the way. Love it, love that. Uh, that's great. Thank you so much, Rosie. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. You're such a fascinating person. Uh, your work sounds your work sounds great. Um, and uh, Elaine, who sadly isn't with us today because she's in Toronto, folks, you may have noticed it was just me today talking to Rosie. Um, but we will definitely be coming to see your show, and uh, hopefully we can grab a drink and talk about Russian poetry and time travel some more. Because I, <laughs> I really would have loved more time with you to get into that. Um, I'd love so, that. Yeah, thank you very much indeed for for joining us. Um, and until next time, listeners, we invite you all to stay nasty.